0: But uh-huh. I wanna lie, down.
1: wanna lie down I ain't all that sleepy But uh-huh. I wanna lie, wanna lie down I wanna lie down
0: oh, I, well. I wanna, lie down. wanna lie down I ain't all that sleepy ever. Uh-huh. I wanna lie, down. wanna lie down Oh, what got the matter, baby? Yeah. Hello, welcome back. Uh, this is the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. So in this episode, I'll be continuing my look at William Wells's, Wells Brown's uh, collected writings as put together by the Library of America. Um, and we had just finished the two works he's probably most famous for, uh, Narrative of William W. Brown, A Fugitive Slave, and Clotel, his novel. And I guess now we're getting into some of his less well-known Unless studied works, but um, The first of these we're going to start to look at today And, and these won't be very long episodes Because these these books This book, is although fairly long Is not the You know, there's not that much I feel I can say about it um, It's called The American Fugitive in Europe And the title is really, really interesting, of course Because uh, Brown was a fugitive slave at this point Just like Douglas was You probably know the story of Douglas buying his own freedom at some point, to avoid the fear of being reenslaved, at some point. Um, but Brown was in that same case, so the title makes it really seem it's going to be a book about about the journeys of this of this former slave. But although it's there in the book, I'm not saying it's not. It's it's primarily a travel log. I would say. So there are moments where he talks about his work in in Europe uh, during a number of years. It's five years uh, that are involved with anti-slavery activism. He meets uh, English, uh, Scottish uh, anti-slavery activists. He spends time in France. And that's one of the more notable uh, incidences in the book as he visits the 18. I think it's 1846. Um, international peace conference or he's he's one of them so there were a a series of international peace conferences in europe from 1843 to 1853 Um, somewhere in london uh, the one he attends is in paris so he gets to visit paris Um, that's the one where victor hugo was the presider of it Um, and he spoke on slavery there Um, and victor hugo brought up the idea of the united states of europe being a way of kind of ensuring peace so this is a a movement in the middle of the 19th century to try to maybe build off the Congress of Europe idea uh, although it doesn't seem to be as conservative the Congress of Europe of course was very conservative this seemed to have been more influenced by perhaps the French Revolution uh, values of, of liberty equality and, and fraternity um, but we get a little window into that so this is actually in terms of to be a pretty good source about that conference itself um, so so I'm just going to talk about the first few chapters in this book and and kind of talk about what you see here. But again, I think this is mostly a travelogue. It's mostly a book about a man's uh, travels, what he sees, uh, what sites he sees, his historical literary reflections on the places he goes. He spends a lot of time visiting the homes of writers or visiting the graves of writers or the old homes of writers, the modern monuments to, to different historical figures, and then commenting on them a little bit. Of course, what's hanging over all this is the contrast between the situation in the United States, where a man like him was always under the threat of being re-enslaved, where, of course, around 4 million other black men and women were in slavery and struggling to get out. Uh, contrasting that to Europe, and he spends most of the his time during these five years in Britain. And of course Britain had abolished slavery at this point. So it's a it's a common theme you see among some of these. You see some of this in Douglas's writings as well, where when he talks about going to Europe, how it's he he feels much more much more in a state of equality than even in the free states of the United States. That there's there's still racism there, but it's it's the sense that they're progressing against racism in a way that the United States isn't. Um, and so we get some of those tastes, but still primarily come at this, uh, not for big insights about his philosophy of slavery, which we saw really in depth in Clotel and his narrative instead enjoy this book as a, as a, as a pretty compelling travel log. And of course these were popular at the time when when people, you, you started having a world being more interconnected you have the British empire creating a world system People are able to travel. You have the steamship allowing people to travel more rapidly, visit places. And that of course leads to curiosity about other places and people want to consume these books. So I don't know if this is the first full length travel log by an African American writer in this sense of, of talking most time in Europe, but, uh, but here it is anyways. So the first chapter, by the way, this was published in 1855. Um, he leaves for London or he goes to Liverpool, I guess first, but he leaves for Britain in 1849 and he spends five years there before coming back home to his family. So he, he seems to spend this time pretty much all away from his family, which is pretty heartbreaking for me to think about, but maybe not an uncommon experience in those days before rapid travel or at least before COVID, uh, but this was published not long after that, in 1855. I I guess it's based partially, maybe on his notes and things, notes and writings he did while he was, while he was abroad. Because that's how a lot of it feels. A lot of it feels like, I went to this place and I took notes on what he did that day. I went to the tunnel under the Thames, or I went to the m- memorial or the birthplace of Robert Burns, and I thought about his poetry or something. It, it's it's a lot like that. It, it seems very immediate and and how it's told so I get the I have the feeling it was written as he was traveling now Brown's main job uh, while he was in Europe in in addition to attending this this International Peace Congress was basically to lecture on slavery and and lecture for the anti-slavery movement in the United States and try to build up support and raise money for the anti-slavery cause in the United States and that's what he did we don't get too much of recounting those speeches he gives or the ideas he expressed in those speeches i don't think we got any of that to be honest we get uh, a little bit of his words but largely he's he's retelling the words of others and giving his reflections on on english scottish and, and french history those are the places he spends most of most of this time so the the first uh, chapter is called A Steamer for Liverpool, and we're, we're we're introduced to his anxiety for leaving home, his missing of home. Um, but we also get him talking a little bit about slavery. It, it gets you thinking maybe this is going to be a lot about slavery in America versus relative freedom in, in Europe, which, of course, is a theme he brought up in both Clotel and his narrative to some degree. But one thing we find out right away is he brings actually some of the Tools of slavery with him. He brings like an iron collar, um, which he calls like uh, the democratic instrument of torture. And at one point in the book, Um, and he does talk about the differences between Europe and America in terms of of slavery and freedom. Um, Again, this is not, I think, the central piece of the book, but it is there early on in the story. So I'll read this. Uh, quote No person of my complexion can visit this country without being struck by the marked differences between the English and the Americans. The prejudice which I have experienced on all and every occasion in the United States, and to some extent on board the Canada, vanished as soon as I set foot on the soil of Britain. In America, I have bought and sold as a slave in the southern states. In the so called free states, I have been treated as one born to occupy an inferior position. In steamers, compelled to take my fare on the deck. In hotels, to take my meals in the kitchen in coaches to ride on the outside, in railways to ride in the Negro car, and in churches to sit in the Negro pew. But no sooner was I on British soil than I was recognized as a man and an equal. The very dogs in the streets appeared conscious of my manhood. Such is the difference, and such is the change that's brought about by the trip of nine days in an American steamer. Now, why I want to quote this is because I think this gets to my initial, maybe, disappointment in what this book was offering, because I thought, oh, we're going to have a really you know a, a full-length dissection of slavery and we'll get his speeches and things like that and of course he's doing anti-slavery work while he's there but you get the sense he doesn't feel he's being a slave he feels he's just one of just one, a tourist just someone traveling and experiencing and interacting with people of various classes in England there are moments in which he's reminded of, of of slavery and racial inequality and things like that um, but moves to the, to, to the side to the to the back burner if you will and i think that's partially the argument the overall argument is he did experience equality there to such a degree that he doesn't had to constantly think about uh slavery in his day-to-day life in his travels um so anyways uh the next chapter is about uh dublin he goes to dublin these chapters don't have names i'm just uh you know, each chapter is kind of a little vignette of his travels. Uh, he does get into the p- poverty and inequality prevalent in Ireland. Um, and there's a really interesting experience he has here where he sees the visits of the royals. I think Queen Victoria is on the ship, on this naval ship that visits Ireland at the time. So we get a little taste of empire. I don't think Brown really pushes it. But... Instead of talking about that kind of stuff, he instead focuses on things like Thomas Moore and Ireland's great writers, which is something he constantly does throughout this narrative uh, that is focusing on the works of, of great writers. All right, so next we follow uh, Brown as he goes to Paris uh, from Ireland to Paris. He spends three weeks in Ireland, but then uh, travels on to Paris for this uh, peace conference. Um, and he visits some of the sites of the French Revolution, which is a nice uh, uh, moment for him to reflect a little bit on, on the French Revolution um, and its, its values. The high point of this part of the book, and this is all still pretty early in the text, is his travels to Versailles and his attendance at his peace conference. Uh, he meets Tocqueville, for instance. Uh, he hears Victor Hugo's speech, and of course Victor Hugo is the president of this convention, and he's the one who, he actually reports on that speech. Um, and he, he goes to various sessions of this, this Congress, and then of course eventually he would speak on, on, on slavery. But again, we're not getting that kind of politics of it all. He s- writes much more about what he sees there, what he sees in Versailles. He's very impressed by the waterworks of Louis XIV. Um, you know, there's still moments where he talks about the difference between differences between us and Europe, um, and how it's shaping his experiences. He writes, for instance, in chapter five, had I been in America where color is considered a crime, I would not have been at such a gathering unless as a servant In company with several delega- delegates, we left the Bedford hotel for the mansion of the minister of foreign affairs and on and on and on like that. So he's, he's conscious of the, of the differences and the relative freedom he's experiencing in 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 france and in england Um, after this conference or or perhaps it's during the conference itself he goes to visit other sites in paris he's particularly interested in the sites of the french revolution and of in the history this is around the time that paris was being rebuilt right during the during the you know the third empire Chapter 7 is also more sites of the French Revolution. He, he reflects a little bit on anti-slavery thought in France in this chapter. But not that much. He's more interested, I guess, in the relative courtesy he experiences in France and uh, the, the relative openness he feels uh, of life in France. So in Chapter 8, he returns to England um, and uh, is invited by a guy named Dr. John Lee, who's a major temperance activist and involved in anti-slavery movements. He's an overall reformer. And I think one thing we can think about here is how transnational and international the, the reform movements of the mid-19th century were. You know, if you study American history, you kind of think of these as American things like the anti-slavery movement, temperance movement, the movement to reform urban spaces and all that and yeah those are very important movements in the united states but they're also international they have a global story right and you see the how they touched everywhere in in the european in europe and in the places affected by europe you even see evidence of it maybe in places like australia or whatever so um Maybe I reckon in places like some of the foreign concessions in China. Eventually you might see evidence of that. So I think they'd be a really interesting research project to to really explore the international dimension of these of this what American historians call antebellum reform movements. Because a lot of the things they were facing in the United States were equally or not more so issues in in Europe. And certainly we have evidence of that here with a character like Dr. John Lee. It's at this point that he begins his lecturing on American slavery. Um, you know, he reflects also a little bit on capitalism and banking and things like that and tells some personal stories of, of what the credit situation is in the United States. And how it's a little bit more fluid and, and crazy than what you experience in Britain, which has that very strong um, Bank of England kind of managing the money system. So you reflect a little bit on that, but it's it's not a high point of the book, but I, it it called out to me a little bit as as an interesting reflection on just how in the United States everything was seemed less regulated, and a little more chaotic, and a little bit more uh, you know there's a kind of criminal taint to a lot of uh, financial doings in America during that time. Um, and then pretty much what we get after this is a lot of single chapters reflecting different visits he goes in in Britain and eventually he goes to uh, Scotland we'll talk about that in the next episode but we have here for instance uh, a trip to the British Museum Uh, he talks about publishing his narrative which was published while he was in in England and his trying to find support for his family you know that's why he published the narrative he's of course not in America at the time Now, there is a a really important section here in chapter nine where he sees a colored man on the streets of London. And he does talk a little bit about poverty in in London at the time, uh, even for people of African descent. So they're not may not feeling the same kind of discrimination and violence and slavery as in the United States. But it doesn't mean it doesn't those those evils don't trickle over into Britain in other ways. And this person he runs into is actually an escaped slave like himself so quote uh i scarcely served the boy when i observed near me and standing close to a lamppost a colored man and from his general appearance i was satisfied that he was an american he eyed me attentively as i passed and seemed anxious to speak when i had got some distance from him i looked back and his eyes were still upon me no longer able to resist the temptation to speak with him i returned in commencing conversation with him learned a little of his history which was as follows He had, he said, escaped from slavery in Maryland and reached New York, but not feeling himself secure there, he had, through the kindness of the captain of an English ship, made his way to Liverpool, and not being able to get employment there, had come up to London. Here he had met with no success, having been employed as growing of tobacco, and being unaccustomed to any other work, he could not get labor in England. I told him he had better try to get to the West Indies, but he informed me that he had not a single penny, and he had nothing to eat that day. And this really moves Brown, which, of course, I think partially he thinks like, but for the grace of God goes, I, this could have been his story as an escaped slave who runs into hard times. Um, But that's, of course, the fate of most of of these men and women who freed themselves. They weren't all welcomed into the abolitionist movement and not given jobs as as touring lecturers or didn't become published authors. So it was the exception to the rule most. Although it remained anti-slavery, not to say they weren't committed to the movement, but they were, you know, just workers who had to make a living in a, what was still a very, very racist civilization. Um, so, so that's a really nice section uh, in Chapter 9, I think. It's worth checking out. Uh, he goes to other sites in London after this, visiting the National Gallery, going to Westminster Abbey. Um, the burial site of Lord Byron. Right. And and other places like that. So that's kind of what you get in this book. I, I don't want to say too much more about it because uh, I'm going to have a whole nother episode where I'm going to maybe try to tease out a little bit more meaning in this book. But it is. um it, it is doing a couple things. It's talking about his life, but mostly it, it does kind of function as a travelogue because the bulk of the text, I've highlighted a few moments that really interest me, but that's not the bulk of what you get in this text. The bulk of what you get is, oh, I went to the waterworks in Versailles or I went to the British Museum and I, I saw this or that, um, like a, like a travel log. And if you're into that kind of thing and you're interested in 19th century history and, and particularly African-American history, I think this might be worth reading. But yeah, I think that's going to be it for now. So uh, in the next episode, I'll, I'll finish up my thoughts on uh, The American Fugitive in Europe. Sorry for not having too much to say about this first half, but I think, you know, there's not much more I can squeeze out of this in terms of thematic meaning. It is well written and, and, and f- fairly compelling, and there's a lot of nice little stories and vignettes he tosses in there. So check it out if you're, if you're interested. Um, so that's going to be all for now. Uh, send me any of your own thoughts to my email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Thanks, as always, for listening. Light, out your mind. Light out your mind. Well, you won't be worried when. Oh, when, when the sun go down. When the sun goes down. You'll never be worried when. When the sun go down. When the sun go down.